0: Let's forget nation state politics until we can actually engage practically the injustices going on in our towns and villages where we live. When we extract belief out of practicing it in our everyday lives, it turns into a banner, an ideological uh, cause that we rally people around to win a battle. And we lose sight that God actually wants to work in our lives, transforming our lives into a way of life that witnesses the kingdom before the world.
1: This modern world is of particular interest to
0: women.
1: Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture.
0: i Zero and I feel fine.
1: Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast. I'm Deb Gregory. And I'm delighted to host a timely conversation with theologian, professor, and pastor, David Fitch. Hi.
0: All right.
1: Now I hear you. You've pressed the magic button.
0: All right. Testing. One, two, three. How's that? Oh, that's better.
1: That's great. Yeah, good. We want your best self.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks. How are you? Uh, Doing well, you know. Uh, David
1: Fitch is the B.R. Lindner Chair of Evangelical Theology at Northern Seminary in Chicago. And he's also the founding pastor of Life in the Vine Christian Community, which is a missional church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Now, many of you know Fitch as a leading voice in conversations about culture and missiology. And you can find out more about him and his writings at reclaimingthemission.com and his fabulous podcast, Theology on Mission. So, I recorded this conversation with Fitch in late 2019, and I'm kind of amazed at how relevant and even apropos our conversation lands in 2020, especially in these weeks leading up to the election day. Friends, we find ourselves in a precarious and liminal time. And many of us grieve this angry culture of ours that seems obsessed with antagonism. In his book, The Church of Us Versus Them, Fitch contends that the church has been kind of swept up in this us-versus-them mentality that has turned us into what he calls an enemy-making machine. So in today's episode, we explore how did we get here and how do we free ourselves from a faith that feeds on division. And because this episode, you know, it's all about handling antagonisms, I take the opportunity to toss Fitch a few hand grenade questions. So stay tuned and see how he handles them. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me about your book and your work. Oh, I
0: appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, can you tell me just a little bit about who you are? What what would you love listeners to know about you? Who's David Fitch?
0: Yeah, uh, I am a pastor of a local body of believers here in town. I have three other pastors with me, so it's not like I'm alone on that. I've been a professor full-time for about 15 years, a pastor before that. and Before that, I was in financial services uh, trying to figure out who Jesus was and what it meant to be a Christian. So it's been a long journey. Uh, A lot of people think, well, he must have been a professor his whole life. Not at all. A professor is this latter stage of my life that I got called into almost by surprise.
1: Oh, wow. So that's me. Okay. Yeah. All right. So do you think of yourself as a professor or, or as a pastor mainly? or Do they, do they have uh, kind they, of overlap? They,
0: no, they're inseparable for me. I can't imagine doing theology outside of the context of the church Mm. and the struggles and pains and all the issues that come up with who are we as a church and especially in our culture today okay uh by the way are you hearing that little beep coming into my yeah i'm not sophisticated enough to know how to turn that off
1: (laughs) we'll go with sorry this uh, is an indicator of just how important you are
0: (laughs) (laughs) i don't think so it's more uh what do you call that junk email blah 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 All that stuff
1: all the spam So as you're living into this calling of being a pastor, but also a teacher, I mean, I I think of a professor as someone who helps to guide the next generation into the future. In many ways, that's kind of what your role has been at the seminary with your students. And you've written a number of books. Tell me about your life as an author.
0: Yeah. Writing a book is an exercise in clarifying your thought and figuring out what you actually believe. It's not like you've got it all figured out before you write the book. It's like you are now in a process of sorting everything out. I just find writing books extremely clarifying, but it make no mistake about it; it is very hard work, especially if you're going to try to write so somebody reads your book as opposed to like uh, like a lot of academics write only for other academics, trying to uh, you know do a check mark off on their faculty development plan. So I've been working on three other books since The Church of Us Versus Them came out. And it's just a clarifying exercise, sorting out and helping me put to words what I'm thinking. And and, and I'm dealing with issues of ecclesiology, culture, sexuality. Oh. All of the uh, conundrums were caught up in that the church of 2,000 years is facing anew for the first time in a very foreign culture. I'm talking about the, the Western culture mm-hmm. of North America and Europe. Yeah, I hate writing books, and I love writing books. Well,
1: tell me about this book that you've just come out with, The Church of Us Versus Them. Why did you write that book? Who did you write it for? And what was kind of that main question that you're trying to sort through?
0: Yeah, um, I wrote this book, The End of Evangelicalism, question mark, about uh, 12, 15 years ago. I put in that book a whole bunch of stuff I was learning about ideology and antagonisms and the way culture works in this kind of dialectic, and I I see it as— This is the way culture works in autonomy from, or even in rejection of God. We gather in groups of people, sorting out our lives by making arguments, and even getting our identity and our reason for living in a cause over and taking the other side down. Mm. And I was seeing this happen all over the place 15, 20 years ago, still in the George W. Bush administration going into the Obama elections and all that. And I I thought to myself, oh, this is the end of evangelicalism. We're getting caught up in all this. We're going to self-destruct. Well, actually, what, 10 years later, it's still there, but it's only worse. Mm -hmm. It's It's magnified. Hundred times, and so I was seriously not going to write this book. This is kind of a popular second edition to End of Evangelicalism. But somebody said, Dude, you've got to write this book, hmm. um, make some of these concepts accessible because all of us pastors are in the middle of this mess, and all of our millennials are struggling and actually rejecting the church. Can we please have some uh, way to reflect and and engage these issues? So I did, I wrote, and Scott McKnight, one of the guys who works down the hall from me, New Testament scholar said, I was not gonna write it. And he said, you've got to write that book. So blame him partially for, for this book, yeah. We
1: will credit him with the blame. Well, he's down the hall at Northern Seminary, right? So you guys are kind of at the forefront of the next generation of pastors. What are the conversations that you're having with your students as they go back to their churches and try to guide their churches through this mess?
0: Yeah. So let's look at what's happening in American Christianity yes, let's. today. Tell me. And I am a product of this American Christianity. I, I could even say I'm a product of a. Evangelical white Christianity, uh, which by the way is not very popular today for a lot of very good reasons. Uh, but you know, what happened there is we had this kind of evangelical kind of fundamentalism, kind of conservatism. We had a renewal of it through what many have called the neo reform, not to be confused with the neo Calvinist movements, the Gospel Coalition, Tim Keller, etc. But meanwhile, we had this like complete reaction, almost like a reverb, a complete throwing up of the hands and saying, my goodness, what's happened here? So there's this like large progressive evangelicalism, almost a rejection of the church, you know, and and this has just been amplified with all the evangelical megachurch problems of say, uh, Willow Creek or Harvest Bible Chapel here in Chicago, but all really magnified all over the country. And we're in this mess. And, and we're in these arguments, and so we're dealing with issues of sexuality and racism, immigration, Make America Great Again, nation and state politics. All these things creating huge backlashes, anger, antagonisms, and it's all distracting us from engaging what God wants to do on the ground uh, in our local neighborhoods and places of struggle where there's so much injustice, violence, oppression racism, sexuality, confusion, problems, all this. And we don't ever get to it because we're in big arguments. Mm. And so I just shake my head and go, can we please not buy into the way the world operates and make space for the presence of Christ to do his work of healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, listening, presence, transformation, healing, and reconciling the world to himself. And uh, so that's, that's the big driver Mm. of Of this book, and probably why I think it couldn't have come at a more apropos time. Mm.
1: You kind of describe these big issues as banners. Can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Why is it that they've become banners? And why is that not really a healthy thing for us to be waving banners all the time?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, If people can just understand this one concept, the book, I think, has done its job. A lot more in the book (laughs) than this. Uh, But, you know, within the study of ideological theory, got to remember, critical theory or critique of ideology or post-Marxism, all that stuff, developed out of Europe post-World War II, after the whole collapse of Europe with Nazism, with fascism. Marx had thought, oh my goodness, we're coming out of capitalism, we're going to have socialism. What he got was fascism, and everybody's walking around going, I I can't believe what just happened. How did 17,000 Lutherans, pastors go, Heil Hitler, how did this happen? And so ideology is really the study of how these antagonisms, these angers, destroy cultures and societies. Well, one of the big ideas there is this idea of a master signifier. It is, uh, can you hear my I dog? I think
1: he agrees with you.
0: Stanley, down boy, come on. Okay, anyways.
1: <laughs> Why am I not surprised that your dog is named Stanley? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, folks, for the interruption. Well, this master signifier idea is, it's a concept. It's an idea that gets extracted out of everyday life and becomes a cause we rally around in the process. It doesn't mean anything mm. in the, like I always say when Barack Obama was running for president and, and by the way, I'm a, a supporter of his in some small ways, is that uh, your banner? but having said that, uh, actually <laughs> okay. not, that's why I said small ways. Uh, but but Barack, I said, change you can believe in. That's what he ran on. But th- that was a great master signifier. There was a great banner. Change you can believe in. Because anybody could put into those words, import meaning into those words, whatever they wanted. And Barack could rally around white liberals, African-Americans from the South Side of Chicago who are struggling with various oppressive racial poverty issues. Everybody could import and gather around and vote. That's what a master signifier does, but it doesn't mean mm-hmm. anything. And so do we really get change or do we just get more of the same? Often what happens with our banners in Christianity is we extract, like I use inerrancy as a good banner, inerrant Bible. We extract it out of actually living our lives, reading the Bible together, discerning what God is saying through the Bible and, and living the Bible, we extract it and we turn it into a banner. We believe in the inerrant Bible and you people over there, you liberals, you don't. And now we're gonna make our lives all about championing the, the authority of the Bible. Nothing wrong with the authority of the Bible, but when we extract it out of our everyday lives, it, it actually distracts us from living the Bible. And that's the way a banner works. And we got a lot of them, I argue, in sexuality. We make We make the gay or the lesbian person be the banner, be the enemy, and we never get around to discerning not only what God's doing amongst all the sexual confusion of our day, uh, but also the sexual issues in our own lives. And we've got a lot of them in evangelicalism, and we never get to because we're just rallying around the banner to try and defeat for family values the other side.
1: Here's a quote from your book. You said, belief minus practice equals ideology.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we extract belief out of practicing it in our everyday lives, it turns into a banner, an ideological uh, cause that we rally people around to win a battle. And we lose sight that God actually wants to work in our lives, transforming our lives into a way of life that witnesses the kingdom before the world.
1: Yeah. So that sounds great. How do we actually do that? That sounds great, but also it sounds a little complex because I think a a lot of people, when they hear that, they think, well, does that mean that I have to no longer have a conviction about these things? Are distinctive still important? How do we engage in such a way where we can still retain some of the things that we believe in or our convictions, but yet uh, not wave them as a banner?
0: Yeah, well... um how do I say this? Uh, I give like two or three. I give three okay. examples of how to practice. Like with the Bible, I show how the inerrant Bible became a banner. And I call us back to a practice of reading and submitting to the authority of the Bible, uh, reading the Bible together in communities and discerning what he's doing. We need to do this, by the way, when we have these conflicts that break out. Like when we're confronted with alternative sexualities and things my parents just had no idea even existed. We need now to read the text together, pray together and open up space for God to lead us and direct us here. The various things going on. One of the biggest problems with the Mm -hmm. sexuality crisis is no one is talking to either side. We're talking about gay and lesbian people. We are not talking with them and their struggles and receiving their criticism of what's going on in the church. So let's take the authority of scripture out of a banner and turn it into a practice. Let's talk salvation and soteriology or or what it means to be saved and evangelism out of just like this thing. Have you made a decision? Are you in or out waving a banner about it? to actually practicing inviting people into the kingdom of God as a way of life. Let's forget nation state politics Mm -hmm. until we can actually engage practically the injustices going on in our towns and villages where we live. I talk about returning these things to practice, not giving up what we believe about the justice of God Mm -hmm. or the authority of Scripture, or that God in Jesus Christ has saved us and is ruling as Lord of the world, and he wants to be Lord of our lives. Not rejecting those beliefs, but practicing them as a way of life.
1: So as you talk about that, my first thought is, that sounds exciting. (laughs) I actually want to be part of that. I really do. Yeah. And I'm looking for kind of building those spaces in the world in which I inhabit. But no. it also feels kind of disruptive because the first thing it requires is that I have to let go of my own ideology for a minute so that I can actually listen to somebody else, right? And yes. um, But that can be so disruptive for us as humans and especially as yeah. Christians when we have kind of a cultural norm of what it means to be a Christian and, you know, all these distinctives and standards. Um, So how would you counsel us to enter into these spaces that can be disruptive, that they are, I mean, they're antagonisms. (laughs) People are divided on this. So how do we enter into that antagonism in a way that um, can listen well and actually call out life? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, at the end of the book, I, I have a little appendix on, you know, how to ask good questions mm. and how to be present with somebody long enough that we can at least see what's going on. You know, Jesus was the one of the models of this. So l- let's just take the hottest button there is, the, the sexuality issues. Oh, let's do it. And, you know, look, we're all uneasy. I don't, I don't care who you are or what side you're on in this question or your own personal life, we're all uneasy talking about sexuality. And we're all confronted with disruption when we see someone who is an alternative option to what we've always understood ourselves as how we are to live. Jesus would ask questions, a lot of questions. He would rarely confront the person he disagreed with unless it was a Pharisee. And then he he would confront the Pharisee in a distracted way. I'll talk about John eight, hopefully, before we get off the podcast, but in in the example of Jesus, but Jesus was always asking questions and he was always opening up space for discussion. He was always being present. He would talk in stories. I tell people, let's do this. Let's learn how to ask good questions. Mm. Let's learn how to tell stories and then say, what would you do with this situation? Mm. And so I'm an old white dude. And when I go into rooms or I go into conferences or I'm sitting with a group of 100 people, I have a lot of eyes on me and I am often being stereotyped or whatever. It's ironic for a white man to say that because we are often the ones doing the stereotyping. But but my point is, if I can say, if someone wants to disagree with me vehemently with anger and vitriol, By saying, okay, let me give you an example of this in my own life. Or let me give you an example of this friend who went through this. And A, B, and C happened. And I tell the story. I take it out of a banner. Out of an ideological cause. I bring it into this reality of a real person's life. And then I ask, what would you do? How would you speak to this issue in this person's life? And all of a sudden, we are now discerning the kingdom as opposed to fighting an ideological battle. Mm. Those are the kind of tactics I think we need for our present time.
1: Yeah, that feels life-giving and hopeful. Okay, John 8, what were we going to say about that?
0: John 8? Um, yeah. All right. So I, I just think John 8, now recognize the story of the adulteress in, in John 8 is a, what, a non-canonical redaction. At least that's what the great Scott McKnight would say. By the way, in the book, when I use it, I give like a series of footnotes that justify oh, John 8. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but I just want you to know I, I respect the Bible. And I think John 8 should be part of the Bible, even though it's a later edition, because it is so speaks to the character of Jesus and how he worked. And everything I'm going to say about John 8, I could say about... 15 other stories about jesus doing Mm. this in the gospels but this story kind of brings them all in one place Mm. so you remember the story the adulteress is put before the crowd before the crowd the adulteress is made into an object an Mm. enemy she's no longer a person they're engaging they're talking about her and and this is of course symbolic of what happens in our culture in terms of racism or in terms of all the other cultural issues, sexuality. and We talk about the immigrant. We don't actually talk with immigrants. Well then, they put the adulteress before Jesus and they ask him a question, should we stone her according to the law or not? And they make the law an ideological banner. It's no longer something being used to discern how to walk in our lives. It's now a banner. Are you for the law or are you against the law? This is what happens in ideology every time. And what Jesus does is he distracts. He he will not enter in to the antagonism on the terms offered to him by the antagonism or by the world. And and he makes space he's silent, stunningly so. And then he provokes a little bit with with a statement. He says, Let him who is without sin, cast the first stone. It was like, okay, yeah, the law, says stone, the adulteress, and it implies a sinless perfection. Let you who are sinless in perfection go first. He, he's using a tactic. He's bringing the full implications of the belief out into the open. Mm, and it's they, kind of a mirror. Yeah, and it's a mirror, and they see themselves. So they slowly walk away, right? Mm. And, and I think this is what the church has got to do. We've got to... Kind of deconstruct, uh, unwind the antagonisms and the angers and the vitriols and the and the banners and the enemy-making machine I call it enough that there's space there for Jesus to work. You know, so Jesus says, "Where are your accusers?" and she says, "They're all gone." That's that's the space the church can make for Him to work. It's only then that he can get to the actual work of the kingdom and, you know, go and sin no more. You are forgiven, you are loved, no more condemned. Now go and work it out. What God's calling you to do and be in light of his work in your life. And I think that's what the church, the church is called to be that reconciling presence in the midst of this craziness and this mayhem that we have in our culture.
1: I love that. It reminds me of something uh are you familiar with Sanghyun Lee, Princeton theologian?
0: I have. Yes, I have read. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so he wrote a book on liminality from kind of an Asian American theological perspective that I mm. found really helpful in my own quest to understand liminality. And yeah. let me find this quote that he has that I think kind of describes what you're talking about. Um so he he kind of riffs off of Miroslav Volf's work on reconciliation, which is yes. what you're just talking about. And he says uh, what Volf describes as making room for oneself for the other. He says, it seems to me this is exactly what I mean by liminality. And then he kind of goes on to describe liminality as the space where we must leave behind structures and boundaries and where we can enter into a kind of no man's land where we wow. have to lay aside social constructs of identity, which that sounds yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah. And then he yeah. goes on to say, he says, the embracing self goes beyond the boundaries of the self, makes an opening for the other, and thereby enters liminal space. And in this liminal space, the embracing self and the embraced self meet, and there emerge communitas and reconciliation.
0: Mm. Uh, I love that. That seems so right to me. Uh, Can you tell me the name of of that title again?
1: Yeah. His book is called From a Liminal Space, An Asian-American Theological Perspective.
0: I'm rushing out to buy it as soon as we're done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's great. He's got some great stories in there, too, about what this looks like, primarily with some of the Korean-American churches he works with. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, talk to me about that. When we think of liminality, think of Victor Turner, he famously called it as a futile chaos. (laughs) It's a place where there is a sense of chaos that we have to enter into in order for something new, for a new life to kind of emerge. Um, And this is the space where reconciliation can actually happen because we're able to actually see each other, not as objects.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Talk to me about that.
0: Oh, I, uh, liminality, I, I'm an appreciator of that idea, that term, uh, it's, it's often found within the fields of sociology and, and I'm working more within the fields of political theory Mm. and ideology, but the same principles hold, uh, that political revolutions have to disrupt the existing frame Mm. that if we're stuck within these frames out of which all these identity structures happen. You know, this is, I'm I'm kind of into post-structuralism. So this is kind of like right down my alley, <laughs> uh, that unless we can disrupt those frames, but it takes small little groups, mm-hmm. uh, revolution never, you don't, you don't change a mega church mm-hmm. by the senior pastor getting up and preaching 10 sermons. You change a mega church by 12 people meeting in a house on Sunday evenings, praying and, dis- and discerning and tending to God's presence. And then somebody's leg grows by a half a foot and they get healed. And then all of a sudden, somebody else like uh, has a major reconciliation moment between the police force and the African-Americans uh, that live on the street. All of a sudden, they have a big part. And all of a sudden, the megachurch goes, oh, my goodness, there's so much life over there. This seems boring. And uh, and then a new a breakout of the kingdom happens. It happens in small mm-hmm. groups. It happens on uh, not in the center of the power no, structure. Oh, in the margins, in right? Small spaces. Yeah. The liminal spaces or the margins or those. This is this is the continual story. And of course, Jesus was the was the one who articulated it way before the post-Marxist political theorists did it. So <laughs> I think that's a great discussion. And for all church mm. leadership, I think it's just so. Uh, There's so much for us to learn in that.
1: Yeah. And that feels hopeful when there's so much anxiety about losing power or losing our centricity in our culture. But yet, I feel like there's an actual blossoming of potentiality in the fact that we're losing some of our centeredness, you know, because I think now we're forced into these spaces where, where the life of Christ can really make the kind of impact in our culture that it can't do from the center. Am I right?
0: Uh, I think you're so right. You know, uh, the history of mission uh, and the spread of the gospel is when immigrant groups, I mean, the first immigrant group was the nation of Israel being dispersed through the dispersion, but but, uh, immigrant groups ever since being forced out or leaving their centrality and being spread all around the world. These immigrant groups were this shaping of mission in other cultures. And Mm -hmm. in in reality, that's what's happening in the United Mm -hmm. States to uh, the whiteness and the white privilege and and the white hegemony that is so Mm -hmm. long ruled. So, I mean, these are exciting times, but, you know, there's a lot of people still clamoring over a return to the 1950s or 60s. I mean, there's people south of the Mason-Dixon line, no names shall be mentioned, who think making America great again is a Christian concept. Mm. Nothing could be further from the truth.
1: That's right. You know, it's easy to even make this an ideology, um, but the reality is that these spaces are also really painful. Um, yes. and, I, and I'm just thinking about, well, let me ask you for an example that comes right from your own world and your own backyard. So I'm just thinking about the tension you hold in your own church where you are a church that affirms and installs women as pastors, right? Yes. And you've come to a point of discernment in that, but yet you're part of a denomination that doesn't and that doesn't recognize or support the women in those spaces. And so how do you hold that tension well in a way that, can hold the pain and the frustration of these women who really are in this very liminal space, um, but yet not just pull back from your denomination or fight it. How are you doing this work of engaging this tension? Can I ask you that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's such a a good question. And by the way, very complex one. Mm -hmm. The reason why I don't think our churches have been kicked out of our denomination It's because our denomination is a holiness denomination. Mm. Almost 50% of our churches were founded by women. Mm. But somehow when we got power, when we became middle class, or when John Piper got into the board of managers, they said, oh, uh, women can't be senior pastors. So first of all, I don't think it's possible to just invent Christianity ex nihilo. We're all part of traditions. Mm. And the traditions, especially if they're over 100 years old, are fallen. So I don't feel called to leave my tradition just because I don't think it's even possible. Although if they kick me out, I got plenty of other options. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that to be snark. I'm just mm-hmm. saying I believe until I'm kicked out, I'm called to work for revolution for the king. And this will start with small groups. It won't start with people high up. I mean, they'll try their best in Colorado Springs. But no, it'll happen on the ground when kingdom breaks out and it's undeniable. And 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 meanwhile, the rest of the church stagnates or, or dies because they're not living in the kingdom where I believe men and women serve together in ministry for so many important theological reasons. So you have to navigate. Mm-hmm. You have to stay there's little things you can do. Like okay. I'm drawing on my tradition and, and being faithful to the parts of it that are so vibrant that have been forgotten, raise up those forgotten things in your tradition mm-hmm. and then live them out. Secondly, when you get pushback, back, have a conversation and dialogue. And thirdly, most importantly, live out the kingdom, be more concerned about the fruits on the ground because they're the fruits that are going to disrupt the hegemonies that are keep holding back the kingdom of God in our denominations and in our traditions.
1: That's a good word. And then one other question that I have, and I think a lot of people, like I'm noticing this in my world a lot, is a pushback against statements of faith or our membership covenants that make you sign certain distinctives. Yeah how do you counsel churches with this? Because I think it has become so divisive. And I think the intent is to be unifying or to kind of cast a unifying vision or, you know, to uphold certain standards or values. But it has in so many cases become a banner that shows insiders and outsiders. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the last couple years where people are just so torn by this. Yeah, They want to be in their spaces, but they don't feel comfortable having to sign something. And it makes them feel like an insider or an outsider. And the reality is I've seen so many people walk away from the church um, in the last few years, and they don't know where to go. And they still have a faith yeah. in God, but they just feel this lack of integrity of like, I can't sign that, but then does that mean I can't belong? So how do yeah. we? how do churches navigate these kinds of things? Is it good to have these statements? How do we do it well, well if we're going to do it? <laughs>
0: So these things aren't all bad. Like uh, I look at what's happened in Chicago with Willow Creek Community Church and the large James McDonald used to be run Harvest Bible Church Network. And they they were independent churches, community churches with no accountability structures and no history. And they were able to basically uh, this is only an overstatement to a certain degree. They're basically able to make stuff up. And so, and what happened was a just, dist- it's just a massive fiasco of leadership and decline, but they drew huge numbers. So, uh, I just want to say denominations, as long as they stay true to their role as being a dynamic, ongoing tradition, have a role to play, but w- time has passed long gone since the distinctives part mm. means as much as mm-hmm. it once did like, um, we started breaking up into denominations over the modernist fundamentalist controversy. That's just one episode, you know, 1920s over, do we believe the Bible or not? Now that's a legit discernment, but now how we believe the Bible and whether you believe it in inerrancy or infallible that's a fracturing a discernment that no longer has any merit. So, so we need to come together and see that we're all mission societies. We all are faithful to the main tenets of the Christian faith has passed on through some of the major creedal formulas. But now we need to discern again, what it means to do mission. And it's so, fr- there's so many multiple cultures. We are not a culture, hmm. capital C, <laughs> singular anymore in this country mm-hmm. like we ever were, but the white people thought we were. Mm-hmm. Now we're cultures. We're in missionary situations where we have to engage. All these complexities, and it's different from Venice Beach, Los Angeles, to Belmont Avenue, Chicago, to my uh, South Beach, Miami. It, to Toronto, Canada. It's so different. If you are trying Columbus, to impose Ohio. Columbus, <laughs> Ohio, that we just can't have one statement that fits all. Yeah, we have to engage and contextualize. That's a
1: good. So one. I hope
0: our denominations can become mission societies again. In the United States of America.
1: Yeah. I love this vision that you're casting forward because it is the vision of being kind of a healing and reconciling presence in the world. I mean, that's kind of the mission that we are. You know, we gather around the table of Christ. We partake in his life and it is to nourish us, to give life to the world and to be his living presence in the world. And sometimes I see, I don't know, Well, this is an awful question, but I'll ask it anyway. So sometimes I see churches incapable of being a reconciling presence. There's so much unreconciled business. Yeah. Um, But yet they seem to be able to put on this show, this entertainment that draws in huge crowds. So if a church is not able to engage in reconciliation in and among itself, can we still call it a church?
0: Oh, wow. Well... That is an interesting question. That's a question I was probably asking 15, 20 years ago, you know. Um, <laughs>
1: Maybe I read that in a the great giveaway.
0: <laughs> and, and then I got, I, I always like to say, uh, I got over my angry phase.
1: Okay. Uh, <laughs> was that uh, your angry and, book? And,
0: and, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that um, I personally want to be careful I'm just I'm doing a new book for Harold Press on what is the church where I'm asking, you know, the questions. What is the church? Why the church? And then how the church? And I would like churches to be forced to ask those questions mm. all over again. But I don't want to be in a position to answer it for them, mm. you know, before we even get started. No, you're not a church. You know, I didn't say it's where we're something. Uh, I want them to have to be forced to answer that question all over again. And I think, by the way, oh man, in Chicago, at the implosion of some of our largest, most famous white churches, at least, we cannot help but ask that question. Mm. There's people, thousands, thousands of people walking around, Christians, coming away from these large churches, post-traumatic syndrome, Mm. you know? What just happened to me? How do I make sense of not only the church, but Jesus after this? And, And we have to be forced to ask these questions. All over again. I think more and more churches, especially in the large metro areas in the north, are having to ask these questions all over again. So let's give them some time.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. Oh well, any any last bits of wisdom you want to leave? Because I think this is a a really hard time to be a pastor. What is the words of encouragement and life and blessing you want to leave with pastors?
0: Yeah, well, um, I just want to say we're in massive, massive shifts Mm -hmm. in in North America and everyone's getting caught. Everyone who's a Christian older than 20 years old, maybe even older than 10 years old. My son who's 14 years old is getting caught in these massive shifts. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to throw up our hands and give up and look at the failures, the massive failures of the church because it's either trying to hold on to power or it's just trying to do whatever it can do to survive. And and we need a new kind of pastor who can go local and just cultivate new forms of life Hmm. that are church. And it's up to us to do this. And it's always going to be small. It's always going to be on the margins. It's Hmm. not going to get the headlines, but your fruit shall follow you long after you're gone in the mission field of North America. So I hope that this book and others like it can encourage us mm-hmm. to do this good work of the kingdom. I have a little house group. Well, it grew to like 20 adults and like 15 kids. And we just broke up into two groups a couple of weeks ago. And that house group is life to me. Mm-hmm. And it's thrilling mm-hmm. to me. And the way God's working, not only in our lives, but others around it is so important. And it makes my life very joyful. Mm-hmm. And so I forget about planting your next big mega church. Mm-hmm. Have a- table of 12 people that meet in your neighborhood and receive the life of the kingdom all over again.
1: I love that. That's That's my,
0: that's my best shot.
1: Thank you. That's a great shot. That hits target for me. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the Betwixt podcast. You can find more Betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missyoualliance.org. MissioAlliance Alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given Betwixt a positive review on iTunes or Google Play. If you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcast and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvolicom or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.